All right. Hello. I think I hear you much better this time around. All right. Very good. So, perfect. So, um, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for your patience and all this. I am scatterbrained as to why this isn't working. Um, But anyways. It's technology. It's designed to confound. (laughs) It's supposed to look like it's convenient. Yes. But the lizard people designed this to confound all of us. It's just it's just completely masked. <laughs> so I am here with my guest, Mr. Jeff Elbel, um, and I am so excited to have him on here. Um, I actually just discovered him. He's mutual friends with a lot of friends that I'm with on Facebook. And the more I discovered, the more I was like, man, I, I want to get to know this guy. And so we've connected on Facebook quite a few times via messenger and just via each other's pages and um jeff i'm gonna actually let you introduce yourself if you don't mind uh sure my name is jeff elbell i live in the chicago area i've been involved with um, music on the semi-professional level for about 25 years and worked with a number of um you call them cult bands, but bands that mean the world to a small number of people from Southern California, primarily from the eighties and nineties. And I have my own groups that my college band was called farewell to Juliet. We were a a swing and a near miss made some good music. Didn't get signed, but uh, we got to play around the Midwest and uh, my current band that's been operating for about 20 years is called ping. And we're just looking for a band called Pong to set up shop with. <laughs> uh, and and Ping has, what do we have? We have we have uh, four studio albums so far, uh, spread out over those twenty years, and we have a fifth one in the works now, and then one that's been sitting for a long time, waiting for attention. So, the the fifth one that should be finished quite soon is called the Three Finger Opera. But uh, people in, in our community that would know me probably either know me from managing or helping to manage a stage at the Cornerstone Festival or playing alongside or occasionally with bands like the choir, the Lost Dogs, the 77s, uh, Daniel Amos, Adam again, supporting those bands usually. And uh, other people might know me uh, as a writer for the Chicago Sun-Times, where I've written for 15 years. And other than that, I, my regular outlets are Illinois Entertainer and Big Takeover Magazine. Big Takeover stretches back beyond 25 years. And uh, five or six people might know that I work for NASA, supporting space science research. That's that's quite the resume. Yeah, there, there's yeah, there's the introduction. So <laughs> that, that's that. how I put people to sleep at parties. <laughs> well, I, in the words of uh, Wayne Campbell, have a large connection of hairnets and uh, name tags. So that's uh, that's my story as far as jobs. So yeah, yeah, I've got uh, all those too. <laughs> um. I did missions for a while, so I got to actually go overseas quite a bit. Um, I worked with a group called Youth with a Mission. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I've always kind of had a wanderlust. And when I moved out of the house, I actually traveled to, um, I believe you're in Wheaton. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. 
so yeah, so my first major trip was uh, I flew to Chicago and um, hung out in Wheaton for a week with a buddy and um, and then also at uh, in Chicago itself with a friend. And so um, I grew up in Northern California, completely used to what was cold, but not anywhere near the cold east of the Rockies cold. So yeah, my body got used to temperatures growing up in southeast Texas, so hot and humid, you know, bio country temperatures are what I grew up with. And then I spent my young adult life in Southern California, so dry and hot, or what I got accustomed to liking, and then moved here for you know, ice and snow <laughs> in what seemed six or seven months out of the year. But it, it it's a good place to be unless you really hate shoveling snow. So. <laughs> But I, in, I, like, I, like being, I like being near Chicago. It's a good place. Where, where in Southern California do you live? Uh, El Segundo and Lawndale. So okay. five minutes from LAX and 10 minutes from LAX. So we were the usual shuttle service picking up people who were flying into and out of LA. And yeah. had a lot of people crashing on the couch. Nice. So how did you, um, how did you get involved with, uh, the cornerstone gig was it because I'm trying to think I, I one year when Kansas City we're actually going to try and make it out for it and then things fell through but how how close is that to Chicago the cornerstone by the time I made it to the first cornerstone festival was 1992 or my first cornerstone festival was in 1992 and I believe that was the second year that it was in Bushnell and so that's about four and a half hours from Chicago. So Chicago is on, right on Lake Michigan in the northeast corner of the state. And to get to Bushnell, you would drive to the western side of the state and go south by a couple of hours near Macomb, Illinois, which is where Western Illinois University is. That's the biggest landmark out there that most people know. Oh, okay. And uh, my first Cornerstone Festival in 1992, uh, I attended that because I had aspirations for Fairway to Juliet to play there. We knew that all the bands that we modeled our band after would routinely play there. And the other guys in the band that had lived in that part of Illinois longer than I had, and who were already aware of Adam again, the choir, 77s, Daniel Amos, Chagall Govera, uh, they had all, they'd been to Cornerstone before. So I was the tag along in 1992 when we played on the new band stage. And that was only about two and a half hours from Champaign. Okay. Uh, from here, it was from Wheaton. I th I think it's three and a half or four. I I sort of forget. I would always zone out on the drive and just focus on getting there. Yeah, <laughs> but I I made that trip from California fourteen times. So, oh my gosh! So once I moved to Wheaton, then it's like, well, getting to Cornerstone is going to be a lot easier. I won't have to rent a car. But that was the great joy of coming to Cornerstone from Los Angeles was uh, having to fly into Chicago and rent a car. And whatever they said, well, you know, would you accept a Dodge? Blah blah blah. And I say, as long as you have it in white, because <laughs> it was just you know some cruel. A cruel streak that that I've kept buried in every other avenue of my life. Uh, uh, I hope it was always uh, fun to bring back the filthiest car that they've seen at the airport after spending a week at the Cornerstone Festival. I took I took great and great delight in doing that because <laughs> yeah, the grounds grounds were not kind of white cars. I've 
I've seen the picture, so so I can only imagine as to how that uh, how that ended for those uh, vehicles, to say the least. Yeah, it was like that character Schlep Rock or Pigpen from Peanuts. <laughs> the car would just throw dirt and rocks as you drove it into the driveway. <laughs> so now you've you've played with Ping quite a few times out there on that stage, though, correct? Yes, many times. Okay. And uh, we still play now, now that cornerstone uh, ran its course after 29 years in 2012 we played we played the last cornerstone festival and uh, then the next year the audio feed festival sprang up in the same uh, calendar uh, area so it, it that was taking place in champagne where fair water juliet had come from and now it's run i think seven years i think this was to be the eighth audio feed my account may be off but it's it's a it's a subset of the community that that populated cornerstone so there was a lot familiar and comfortable and a lot to celebrate about it so i've i've appreciated the audio feed festival folks quite a bit since since uh the late great cornerstone has ceased to be that is awesome how did you now how did you get involved with um the 77s lost dogs da and in uh and adam again then it was a a conflagration of a lot of things. Uh, like I said, back in 92, Fairwood of Juliet was in full swing. And uh, the way we finished our band, three of us were, 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 were college friends. So my, my best friend from college is Brant Hansen. He's the singer in Fairwood of Juliet. We lived together at a co-op house for a few years there before I graduated left town and then came back for graduate school. We started the band when I was in grad school. Uh, he had a friend in town named Jeff Schmail, who's a drummer. And, you know, he was uh, one of the greatest friends of all to have. If you want to start a band, he was a guy that, that had a place to practice and his own drum set. So, uh, you know, we started over at Jeff's place and we put an ad in the paper for a bassist. Because at the time I was, you know, I thought I was Pete Townsend and Alex Lifeson and Andy Summers all rolled into one. <laughs> and so we advertised for a bassist and we said the bands we listed were the choir, the 77s, Adam again, Daniel Amos and Chagall Guevara. And I, I forget whether we had LSU on the list or not. We may, we may not have. I actually, I think John introduced me to LSU. So uh, and one guy answered the ad and it was John Bretzloff. And so if a hundred people had answered the ad, it still would have been John Bretzloff, but John was the only one in town who had heard of all five of those bands and wanted to be in a band with other people who liked that music. So it was, it was perfect. I think I've answered a completely different question than what you had asked, <laughs> but that's how the band, that's how the band got started. <laughs> oh, right. And so we had named all those bands, bands like the seventies, all the bands that became that, that, you know, donated a person to the lost dogs. Um, in the meanwhile, I was beginning to, to do more music journalism. My first piece had been published in the San Diego Tribune in 1988. It was a piece on Adrian Ballou's band, the bears. Uh, and, and so I had published in a, in a, in a top 10 major market newspaper while I was on an internship away from school. Then when I came back to school, there was the daily Illini. Uh, and so because I had quote unquote credentials, uh, they brought me in and let me write for them. And since I knew I had an outlet, I thought, well, I can start writing about some of my favorite bands that these other people haven't heard of. And, you know, I wrote about Daniel Amos and the 77s and Bob Geldof and the choir and everybody for the daily Illini. 
And uh, that was fun. So I started getting in touch with those people that way, even before Cornerstone Festival. And so then once Cornerstone Festival started happening, I'm no good at sitting and watching a show. I like to help put on the show. So I started helping Glenn, Al- Ven- Glenn Van Alcamada from Jesus People USA manage the gallery stage. And so I kind of became his deputy for and, you know, became that and remained in that role until the festival was done. And so I would interact with them. And then I would go back to California and my bands in California were playing and we'd get on shows. We, you know, we uh, Sunny Day Roses played shows with 77s a few times when Mike would come to Southern California. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I remember duct taping uh, Elvis Sideburns to Mike Rowe's face at the Whiskey A Go Go. First time I'd really interacted with him. I thought this is 15 year old me thinks this is pretty strange right now. Uh, but you know uh just trying to be helpful in order to learn from my heroes uh, learn how they did what they did and see if uh, any of the secrets of songwriting or you know playing guitar like that would rub off and you know people can listen to the ping records or the farewell of juliet records and make that judgment but uh got involved that way and uh i was mike not guitar tech for the for the pretty much the entire run of the aunt betty's oh wow okay and um yeah from almost from beginning to end i was a little late on the beginning uh but from there that's that's where i my relationship with andy carter or as he his you know his proper stage name is andrew wesley but i uh got involved with with andy that way and, and we helped each other out at shows and then i became andy's bass player when he started his solo project and in there, Brian Healy would come around to see Mike play in the in the Bettys, and and uh, eventually that led to making a couple of records with Dead Artist Syndrome, and that led to my first gig with the Lost Dogs, uh, because the Lost Dogs and Dead Artist Syndrome were booked to play Alice Cooperstown in Phoenix, so I went down there as Brian's band for Dead Artist Syndrome. I played my very first solo show uh, as you know for Ping. And I also played bass for the Lost Dogs at that show. So that was, that was a very cool, that was, I think that was 2001. That was a pretty big, pretty big day for me. Yeah. It, it's funny. I, I played trumpet in high school. So I got my taste of the limelight, especially when I. Uh-oh. This is really fun. Good. Um, Michael, uh, I, I let you, um, Here's another edit point. You were saying you played trumpet in high school and the phone faded for a moment. Yes. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So if you pick it up from there, I'll, I'm with you now. Oh, perfect. Go ahead. So, yeah. So I ended up playing trumpet um, in high school and I soloed on Herb Alpert's Rise. Uh-huh. And so that's where... That's where I was like, okay, I want a part of the limelight. But then I moved around and I never really picked up anything out of high school. Um, but most of my friends that I've just, you know, kind of migrated to have all been musicians. And so it's been really fun because um, we all fell in love with the same kind of music. And, and it's funny that the four, the four main bands that you mentioned there, it's, it's such a trying to think of the word I'm looking for here. Just such a great theme 
because I remember being in high school and, and we had a youth pastor and he was just like, here's, here's something you might like. Um, and he knew that I wasn't really into the, into the poppy stuff. And he handed me the youth choir. And I remember falling in love with that thinking like, Oh my gosh, there's actually stuff like this out there. Cause you know, I'd been given the Amy Grant unguarded tape for <laughs> my junior year. Yeah. If, if you like, it, like Amy Grant's unguarded. Exactly. So I got those speeches, and so it was one of those things where I was given it, and it was like, okay, this is neat. But then I had a friend in high school who introduced me. Uh, you know, like I said, my youth choir. In, my youth pastor introduced me to youth choir, and then my buddy introduced me to Daniel Amos and the Seventy Sevens, and it was just, it was so incredible to hear bands that were a part of, you know, the faith community, but didn't, um, didn't let the music, um, that's what I'm looking for. Didn't let the music go to waste. Didn't let those kind of things like fall off the shelf kind of a thing. Right. They were, yeah, they were, they were into it to be artists. They weren't into it to be the Christian counterpart to anything happening in the secular world. They were in, they were in to create art as originally as anybody else would have in any other venue. Yes, exactly. Thank you. That that's that's my point in a nutshell. And and I think that felt really good. Was we could turn on, uh, like I, I grew up in Northern California. And it was funny because we get a radio, um, a television station out of Sacramento, and I didn't realize it until a couple years later. But there was an anti-drug commercial on there, and it was Charlie Peacock. Oh wow! And I was just like, why do I recognize this guy? I had the tape for a few years and I went back and, and listened to it. And I was like, Oh my gosh, that's, and sure enough, it pulled up. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Hmm. And, and so for us, it was kind of like, that was our little Mecca, even though um, Sacramento was three hours away. It was just like, Oh my gosh, all these great bands are coming out of the warehouse. Mm-hmm. And, and that for me was, was huge. And so kind of going back, it was really incredible to me when, Hold on one second here, Jeff. I'm gonna. Yes, doll. She's in bed. Because she's sleeping. <laughs> yeah, <that's good. laughs> Come on, doll. Where'd it go, my nights? that's going to be some dead air. <laughs> yeah. Not to worry. The one child I thought was out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, perfect. Where's mom? She's sleeping. Why? Why? <laughs> you should ask. What time? Is uh, yeah. No, uh, I had a, I had a friend when I, I had an internship from university of Illinois uh, to San Diego for four semesters spread over two years. Uh, spring, spring and summer over two years. And there was a guy that I met out there that handed me Chase the Kangaroo when I had never heard the choir. And <sighs> that poor guy never got his tape back. <laughs> I, I owe David Cameron. Uh, a guy, there, you know, uh, other people all around here probably know a different David Cameron from Chicago. But uh, I know I owe a David Cameron from San Diego a great debt. 
and a brand new cassette copy of Chase the Kangaroo from 1989. Yeah, that was that was such a great. Well, I mean, it's, it's still a great album. Um, and it's funny because when I moved out of my parents' house, I went and worked at this, this Christian camp, and it was up outside of Fresno. And so, this guy that's He's really become like an older brother to me. Um, he was asking me bands that I was listening to. And, and it was funny because he, he's that guy that is the, I'm not ever going to judge you by anything you've done, but show me your record collection because that's what I'm going to judge you on kind of a thing. Nice. And so it was funny because he'd asked me one day. Um, he sat down and someone walked up and was like, hey man, here's your tape back. And he was just like, He's like, go, what are you listening to? And I was like, oh, it's Peter Gabriel. Peter plays live. Mm-hmm. And he just looks and he goes, I knew I liked you. Yeah. This, this is way we can be friends. And so him and I just forged this friendship. And it turns out that, um, you know, he was asking me some of the other bands that I was into. And I was like, oh, man, I really dig the choir in the 77s. And he said, he said, that's hilarious. And he said, um, he says, I used to run street level agency booking artists. And he said, Tim Chandler's wife was actually uh, my secretary. And he says, I've, I've known Terry and all those guys for years. And it was funny because the very first um, gig that I'd ever gone to as a kid was uh, Leslie Phillips. If that doesn't date me, I don't know what does. Right. Um, Randy Stonehill. Uh, yeah, I think it was actually Leslie Phillips and Randy Stonehill. And they played in Paradise, California of all places. And um, would that have, been, but, that have been for Equator? No, that was just some little one-off in a um, in a high school gymnasium. On the uh, actually was the um, the night of the '86 Super Bowl when the Bears won it. Yeah, I was just trying to place it by what Randy's album would have been at the time. Oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, I'm. Yes, yeah, that would have probably been Equator. And I think hers was, I think her big one right then was like Powder, Powder Room Politics, I believe. Okay. Whatever album that was on. But uh, it was funny because Tim, Tim Chandler was actually playing bass for Leslie Phillips' band at that time. And it was, it was just hilarious because Russ was like, oh my gosh, I totally remember booking that show and thinking Paradise. So it was just like, you kidding me? Like, how small a world is this? But um, then I got to hear him talk about, um, you know, he, he found out I was a huge fan of the uh, the cult. And he was just like, oh, man, I got to tell you the story. He's just like, uh, we were shooting the uh, the cover art for Diamonds and Rain. He was just like, that's actually what uh, Steve had requested was, was to listen to the cult while they were doing their photo shoot. So it's just little things like that to where I've just, like, met these people. And it, it keeps connecting the dots. Um, and when we were living in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I just joined on Facebook and they used to show like, you know, like shows in your area kind of a thing. And I haven't seen that come up in a while, but that's fine. Um, but they showed the lost dogs and I was just like, are you kidding me? So I did a little more research and found out that they were playing, they were on their, um, route 66 tour Mm -hmm. and they were playing, they played at a homeless shelter of all places. And so I thought, that's really, really cool. And we got there super early. I thought it'd be jam-packed for whatever reason. And we went down there, and they were sound checked, and we walked in, and, and, um, and I got to meet them all. And, and 
And I just remember like feeling like telling my 16 year old self, 17, yeah, 16 at the time when I'd started to listen to these bands in high school, it's just like, oh my gosh, like this is just absolutely incredible. And I remember mentoring to Stephen Derry, like, hey, I know a really good friend of, of yours, uh, Russ Payton. They're like, oh my gosh. And they, they couldn't help themselves just grinning and, and they just started talking all about him. Um, and Mike joined in and Terry. And it was just one of those things for, for me, it was like super cool to go and see them. But then, you know, they're, they're playing at a homeless shelter of all places. And it was just like, holy crap, like these guys are really, really down to earth and they're not trying to sell anything to anybody. They're trying to give away their gifts. And that to me was, was just huge. Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. Real people doing what they have to do, however they have to do it. And that's, that's the way it's always been with them. You know, we're lucky we've been able to see them play in a few big places or a couple of big festivals, but if all they would have ever had would have been places like that, I know they'd be doing it. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, Fairwood or Juliet did its one and probably only reunion show in 2017. We played at Audio Feed. And uh, the, the band that we modeled ourselves on more than any other was the choir. And Steve drummed that reunion set for us. And we were making a lot of weird faces at each other throughout the set. <laughs> who was... But yeah, we we closed probably more than half of our shows. Where we, if we had an encore, we would almost always encore with "Restore My Soul." Oh wow! So yeah, they're a big deal to us. That's really cool. And then you've you've actually sat in with the choir, correct? What have I done? Well, I've I've no, uh, I've played shows with the choir, and I have played bass for Steve a few times. And I've played bass for Derry, and um, I've I've done the only Derry Dougherty tour. It was a grand, uh, grand North American tour and uh, encompassing three dates. <laughs> we played Champaign, played Detroit, and we played um, Aurora, Illinois, and it was great. So I could have done that for a while, believe me. That was that was, and that was for his "The Color of Dreams" record that came out a couple of years ago. Okay, and. Well- so uh, I've made a couple of records with Derry. So not the big ones, you know, the kind of the secret fan club type records, but still I've made a couple of records with Derry. So that's been. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's just, that's really cool. And like I said, I, I think the biggest thing is what. Um, just lost my, tr- sorry. I just thought I saw my daughter. I was just like, Nope, we're not <laughs> right. doing this. again. <laughs> That's that's really cool though, man. I mean, I I love hearing stories like this, and like I said, I think that that's kind of, um, you know, reading up on the things that you've done, and then I what was really cool to me was, and and I think you had said that you were blown away by that too when when uh, everybody in the in the band appreciates Jeff. Oh yeah, that was unbelievable because you know there you go from the my first experience with the choir was somebody handing me a copy of chase the kangaroo when i'd never heard of them when it was a new record and then uh played a show with the choir as ping in dixon illinois and uh opening for the choir and and steve came out and sang everybody in the band appreciates jeff at at that show and so yeah i was i was you could have knocked me over with a feather i think is what i said before it was yeah and it's like you know i better remember this moment right now is these moments don't come around 
very often. So that was, yeah, that was ludicrous. It's wonderful. The first time I'd ever seen the 77s, I saw them at the Wild Blue in 1991. And we got there and um, walked in. And they were still setting up and sound checking. And it was funny because their sound guy, I, I don't know if he thought we were <laughs> just whomever, but he looked over at me and he said, hey, you ever run chords before? Mm-hmm. And I had done them with my friend up at this camp. And I said, yeah, a little bit. And he's like, perfect. <laughs> he's like, I'm going to have you run these up to the monitors for me, if you don't mind. So, again, I'm... I think I'm 22 at the time, but I'm taking these cables up and I'm at the feet of Mike Rowe and I'm completely in awe. Like, okay, first off, this is the first opportunity I've had to see this band. I mean, I've loved these guys since my junior year, 1985. And I'm like, there's no way that this is happening right now. And they're already making me work. (laughs) Exactly. That's exactly like those those guys. And, and yeah, but it was just, you know, it's like you said, it's like those moments, like, I just sat there like, holy cow, like, how did I get here? And it's and, and some people were like, oh, it's kind of cool. And then I had other people were like, well, who's that? And I'm like, oh, never mind. But in my mind, like, it was almost like reaching that pinnacle of like, okay, I can die now. I'm good. And then that box checked. Yeah, that's exactly it. And then, and then I was able to check mark a box in 92 of seeing Rush on the Roll the Bones tour with Primus opening for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wish I would have seen more of them, obviously, with the passing of Neil, but it didn't never panned out, but that's all right. Um, still to see those guys even once just completely blew me away. Yeah, that was a good tour. But um, I saw that. I saw that one. I'm, I saw that one in St. Louis. I think Mr. Big was on that show or on that leg. So I didn't get to see Primus. Well, the how I got introduced to Primus was we went to see um, Living Color. And the opening band was supposed to be King's X. And I was really disappointed that they didn't play. They had a, something happened mm-hmm. where they couldn't make it. And we got inside and someone said, oh, man, the band opening is this band called Primus. And I was like, OK, whatever. You know, as long as I get a great show by Living Color, I'm fine. Well, they came out, and I just remember, you know, they opened with John the Fisherman, and the opening chords they played, you know, they did the the opening to YYZ. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, you can be horrible, but I'll still think you're one of the one of the best bands out there, just just for that alone. And they completely blew me away. Um, And so I went out and got their old, you know, I think, well, actually, they hadn't even come out with uh, Sealing the Seas of Cheese yet. That was getting really shortly. So they had uh, Suck on This and then um, Frizzle Fry was out. Mm -hmm. And then I remember seeing them open for Rush and it was just completely like, oh, my gosh, like, you kidding me? Just to see them on the small stage and then see them on that whole thing and then to find out, you know, that, that him and Getty have just become really good friends over the years and just that whole thing. And so. I yeah I I hadn't gotten a chance to see Primus until they came and played at Lollapalooza, but I had seen Oysterhead at the Palladium. I went to I went to the Palladium as apparently the only guy in the room there to see Stuart Copeland because he was from the Police, 
Yes. It was either there. Uh, the, the fish had a huge turnout. Everybody, most people were there to see Trey. Yeah. I would say it was probably about 75 to 80% fish freaks and about 20% Primus freaks and about two people, me being one of them there for Stuart Copeland. And they were, of course, they were all fantastic. And that was a great band to see and lots of improv that still sounded musical and melodic. It made me a true believer in all three of those bands. So that was a lot of fun. And, and it's funny that you mentioned Copeland because, man, like, and this is where I've set up before, I, I could literally talk all night long with you about different bands. But Copeland is is one of my favorite drummers, though. And I think he's, I think in, in certain circles, he's certainly getting due credit, but I, I still think he's incredibly underrated. Um, he's just so fantastic in his, his work on the hi-hat. I mean, hello, you know, Peter, Peter Gabriel <laughs> hooked him up just to play hi-hat on Red Rain. <laughs> I mean... Right. Yeah, it's it's hard. It's especially no as as a, as a consistent a self promoter as Stewart is. It's hard to think of him as underrated. But I know what you mean. I mean, he was in the biggest pop and rock band in the world mm-hmm. at, at, when when they quit. So a lot of people, uh, I I don't think people kept talking about him as much as they might have kept talking about other other drummers uh, since the police had retired, but. Uh, he certainly did really well for himself as a composer, and uh, he he didn't sit back and do nothing and you know cash royalty checks on on landlord or whatever. No, he's certainly been um, been active, and I remember um, I really liked uh, Animal Logic. Yeah, I would have loved to have seen that band play too, with uh, him and Stanley Clark. And I'm trying to think of who else was in there, but. Mm-hmm. As soon as I heard his name and I heard Stanley Clark's name, I was like, oh, well, okay. They, they could sing the alphabet, and I'm going to still go out and buy that. I did. I listened to – what was the singer's name? Deborah? Yes. I'm trying to think of her last name, but, yeah, she was – drawn a blank, too. But I listened, I listened to that first record a lot, and then I didn't follow a lot afterward. But I, I did listen to that first Animal Logic record quite a bit. Yeah, they were just – they were phenomenal. So – who would you say, if if you had to, who who were, I mean, and I don't think we got the Getty Lee part, so I definitely want to discuss that again. Okay. Um, on the interviews that you've done, who would you say they're probably your top five, if if you had to? Uh, I can give you the top three pretty easily, and uh, Getty Lee is number one. Uh, he moved into number one with that interview for his big, beautiful book of bass last year. That was just the most fun I'd ever had talking to one of my heroes. Uh, before that, it would have been David Gilmore. And so Getty edged out David Gilmore. And uh, beyond that, it would be um, Bob Geldof, big, big musical hero of mine. Of course, most people know him as St. Bob from uh, yeah. Live Aid, but I, I was a big Boomtown Rats freak and loved all his solo records. Um, those, So those would be my top three. Uh, and I... You know, it'd probably be worth opening it up. I've been able to talk to Daniel Lanois a few times, and he's a tremendous favorite of mine as well. So, you know, Geldof and Lanois are both people that uh, are well known among music obsessives like ourselves. Yes. Probably like people who would be listening to your podcast. But to the general public, that's, you know, Bob Who and Daniel Who, uh, they would know Eddie Lee and the, they would know the David Gilmore. 
but I, and, uh, in recent memory, probably my other favorite would have been Joe Jackson because I had heard so much about how he would be really mercurial and difficult and, and, uh, and wouldn't respond well to questions and all that. And I, I showed up so overprepared and so interested to that review. Even though he tried to make it not happen three different times, when it finally happened, it went so well. It was, it was a real pleasure. So I've, yeah. Uh, being able to be having the platform of the Chicago Sun Times to allow me to speak to some of my favorite musicians like that has been a really great gift. I've enjoyed that a lot. I, the last the last major one I did was just before the shutdown. I I got to spend thirty minutes talking to Mike Campbell from the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers band, and so that was my last big feature for the Sun Times before lockdown. Oh man. And then that tour got shut down, so unfortunately didn't get to go see him play. But hopefully he'll be ready to bring that album out when people can travel and play again. That was a lot of fun, too. Yes, that's that's the thing that I miss is, is just being able to go to shows. And we, um, they've actually really kind of started to get some little bit more of, I don't know, higher caliber of music. I mean... You know, and that's not to shame anybody that comes through our town, but um, we were supposed to get, uh, oh gosh, Animal Logic was, oh no, sorry, not Animal Logic, um, Animals as Leaders, hmm. there we go, was supposed to come through. Um, and last May, out of the blue, we had the winery dogs. Oh, wow, yeah. And that to me was like, wait a minute, who's who's coming to town? Like, like pinch me, like kick me, do something. Cause there's no way we're getting this caliber of musicianship. And that was absolutely incredible. And it's kind of funny because I mean, obviously Portnoy, I was a huge dream theater fan. Um, I absolutely loved those guys right out the gate with images and words. I, I know that they had the one before with the other lead singer, but that was my introduction to them. Um, and then of course, Billy Sheen, I mean, shoot, I remember, you know, obsessing over Billy Sheen and his bass playing, from when he was with um with David Lee Roth in the Eat 'em and Smile. Yeah, I, and then, I used to see Billy would show up at the King's X gigs in Los Angeles. So I got to meet him and talk to him a couple of times, just you know, with him casually in the room. And so that was that was great. Uh but of course, you know, I I I tried not to go all fanboy on and so you know, I saw you guys playing with Rush in St. Louis on whether that was Hold Your Fire or uh, Roll of Bones, I think it was Roll the Bones. Actually but, I think I think that was Presto was when they toured with them. You are correct. It was Presto. That's right. So Hold Your Fire was Tommy Shaw. Tommy Shaw was uh, the opener on the Hold Your Fire tour that I saw. Then it was uh, Mr. Big on Presto. And I can't remember right now who was Roll the Bones. That, and eventually, not eventually, you know, they started doing an evening with. I forget. But I think that was I thought that was Test for Echo. Yeah, I don't remember when they started doing. Did um, now did you see Rush after the Roll of Bones tour at all? Did you see him any, any uh, other time? The only tour I my first Rush tour was Grace Under Pressure in 1984. Okay. The only tour I missed until the end was Counterparts because I moved cross country wall and missed Counterparts in two locations. Oh man. So and the and the at least the second best show I saw if not the best rush show I saw was the R40 tour in Chicago. It absolutely was a mind blower. They went out on, in the best possible way. 
the best the best set list, the best playing, the best show, staging, all of it. Those guys did everything right the whole time. It it's funny because I have I'm a part of that um, that Rush is a band group, mm-hmm. and um, they were they were saying today was the uh, anniversary of the uh, well the five year anniversary since they played their farewell show yeah. in the Forum, and and I watched it and and uh, they just showed they showed them play Working Man at the very end. Neil comes out from behind the kit, taps Alex on the shoulders, taps Getty on the shoulders, and gets them both together and. You know, arms around him and smiles and everything like that. And it was just, oh yeah. And it, said what he says, oh, isn't this nice? Yeah, yeah, that was really touching. I thought. Sorry, yeah. making noise. No, you're fine. I'm making noise now. <laughs> yeah, that that was really special. Uh, re, you know, coming to realize what a band of brothers that they were over the years, and then being able to being able to see that happen on a few occasions. I would have loved being there in Los Angeles or in Toronto when they brought Ben Mink out and played Losing It. But I, I did get to see some pretty special shows with them and that the last one in Chicago was was really fantastic. Yeah, they're just, you know, and that's a band, man. I I think I'm, well, I did mention it in the, on my first podcast, but I just remember my brother coming home with Hemispheres looking at that album cover thinking what in the world is this and then hearing the trees and it's funny because it's it stuck with me my brother moved away and um i've i for whatever reason kind of forgotten the name of the band and then seventh grade moving pictures drops and i remember um a friend of mine from high school his name is jeff as well um we're at the uh arcade and we both spied Tom Sawyer, and so we put it on, and he was just like, oh, man, you like this song? I was like, man, I love Rush. And he was just like, oh, man, my older brother has all the records. And and that was seventh grade, and we just forged a friendship. I mean, we, we talked still pretty, you know, not as often as we'd like to, but we still talked quite a bit. Um, we went through junior high and high school together. And it's just one of those things to where, you know, and, and again, the choir, the 77s, Daniel Amos, Adam, again, all those bands – you know, I've just randomly met people and and just found ourselves having these great relationships just due to that music alone. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing for me with Rush. I mean, Rush was one of those bands that, you know, I mean, there's people that like, oh, I think they're okay. I think I had moving pictures, and I'm like, oh, just just walk away, please. <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing. Don't too many casual Rush fans, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that permanent waves the the radio song or whatever that is. You know, there there aren't too many people like that. You either think they're great or it's like, oh, I can't stand that guy's voice. Whatever. Yeah. So I I was never afflicted by that. I came I came into them at the right time. Weirdly, uh, I think the first the first song of any uh with any rush connection i heard was battle scar i had a friend in high school a guy that moved into high school when i was a sophomore he moved into town uh it was a rush freak i didn't know anybody else there that liked rush at all but he he said here you got a place i I just got this record and it's got the guys from rush on it's like "Mm, i don't know what they are but he played uh, the max webster record universal juveniles because it had the song that they they did together battle scar Okay, and uh, and then somebody used Y Y Z for a skit at church in my extreme small town, and got all kinds of grief for playing satanic <laughs> music at church <laughs> for a skit. And this, I started thinking, oh wow, maybe these these rush people are onto something. I, I should listen. 
And it wasn't long <laughs> after that we had an all-day band event or a track event. I don't even remember which it was. I'm pretty sure it was a, a band event somewhere across the state. We had to drive for a couple of hours. And uh, one of the guys on the drum line lent me his copy of Permanent Waves for the whole afternoon. And I think I do it six times in a row before I would give it back to him. And that was it. So that, that would have probably been, so that record came out in 1980. I probably heard that record in 1982 because it was after I had heard YYZ. Okay. So it was either 81 or 82. And then, and, uh, but uh, Grace Under Pressure was the first Rush album I bought the day it came out. Uh, that same friend that had played Battlescar for me, he and I ditched school to go drive to Dixon, Illinois, to the the closest record store that would have carried it. And we bought it on the straight out of the box. And we saw that we went, drove to Chicago to see uh, them play at the Rosemont Horizon later in the, in the summertime. It's I, so... I, it was a really straight arrow in school. So skipping, ditching class to go buy a rock and roll record. Was, was quite rebellious for me. That was probably <laughs> the dream of my high school rebellion. It's so funny because, man, like just hearing you even talk about going to the record store and buying things like that, it's it's one of those things where, man, that is such a piece of nostalgia that I miss so much. Um, we have a we have a place called Triple Play Records here in town, and they and they've got some good stuff. But man, I really do miss. You know, going well. I worked at a Tower Records um, for uh, for a few months, and then I and then the really cool thing is it turned into a longer venture because I got I, I really liked everyone I worked with, and so when people wanted nights off or um, I had weekends off, and so I would tell them like, "Hey, man, if you want to cover one of your shifts, like, let me know." And so I pretty much worked every weekend down there as well, mm. and I just and it was just hanging out with my friends, but we we talked music, and and that's where I learned. Um, you know, so much about different genres that I would have never gotten into otherwise. Like, I mean, the Stones, for example, I'd heard them. I wasn't a fan. I didn't care for anything they did. And then finally, I just, someone someone put one in one time, and I thought, okay, like, I can kind of do this. I kind of like where this is going, and I, I can't remember what it was, what album it was. And I said, okay, Brian, if, if I was going to start with a, with a record, where would I go with? And he said, exile he says just just get exile on main street and he's like if you like that then i can suggest more yeah that's a good story. not only did i like it but i loved it and that thing became constant rotation for me and and i just one thing that i always did as a kid well because i spent a lot of my formative years on restriction um due to uh i was quite the opposite kid i was the one that was like hey michael showed up for class today let's uh let's buy him ice cream yeah (laughs) (laughs) so um, different strokes for different folks. Yes. So my my restriction time was always just reading, uh, you know, music magazines, the the album, you know, the album inlays, all those kinds of things, um, you know, liner notes and everything. And, and it's just funny the stuff that stuck with me. But I love it because when I meet people that are like mine, it's like, oh man, do you remember? I mean, I I still remember reading the um the back of the the original boston lp mm-hmm. and like meeting how they met like a hundred times over and i you know i i couldn't have told my mother what the mission of san carlos was but i could have told her how bradley delp and tom schultz met yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, like I said, I, I grew up in the in the the sticks. This stuff, the the music that I thrive on now, did not reach us at all uh, in the early '80s. But my dad traveled for work, and he would bring back magazines for me. And so I was a Midnight Oil fan for probably three years before I ever heard a note of their music because we didn't have any place to go buy it in 19 between 1982 and 1984 there it just didn't exist and i didn't get any i didn't get anywhere where they would have carried it but i remember reading about 1098 over and over in 1982 uh when they tried to break midnight oil in north america and it sort of worked in the major in the major markets and they would have been playing in chicago at the time but i didn't get to go see them or hear them and so i picked up with with that band which is another lifetime favorite uh, around the same time most people did it with Diesel and Dust. That was the first time I got to, okay. I got to see the Oils play Diesel and Dust in San Diego. That same that same that same uh, year that I would have been introduced to the choir was when I saw okay. Diesel and Dust. Saw the, the the Midnight Oil came around. They played with House of Freaks and X. Oh wow! My first X gig. No, it wasn't my first X gig. My first X gig was li- uh, Farm Aid. I saw the first Farm Aid concert in Champaign. Oh, that was what, 85? Yeah, September 85. Okay. And, you know, that was, I was a college freshman. So, okay. And more interested in music, you know, rock and roll music than anything else. So that was, I was uh, quite in my element there. So I got to see the, I was, I was already way into the Blasters and Lone Justice, and they both played on that bill. Tom Petty played on the bill, got to see Dylan for the first time there. Oh man. So yeah, 85. Yeah, I had a couple of things, a few landmarks in my life that I would have considered sort of the musical awakening that would have either made me into the music fan or the songwriter or the whatever. And it would have been when I was 10 and turning 11, first getting fix, fixated on radio. And I remember when the Talking Heads first single came out, when the first Dire Straits single came out, when the first Police single came out, those and you know Queen and ELO were on the radio. So that that was a that was a big threshold, and then Live Aid in '85. So between the Unforgettable Fire coming out and Live Aid, everything just kind of blew into Technicolor for me. Mm-hmm. I didn't have big brothers or big sisters, so I had nobody's musical taste to steal, and I grew up in the middle of nowhere, so. Uh, I didn't have anybody's musical taste to steal. I had to, I had to, I had to find them by those, by those big watershed events like that. It's, it's funny to hear you say that because when we lived in the Bay Area, we had everything kind of right there. Um, and then we moved up to the mountains in Northern California and my high school class was like 60 people. Yeah. And it was kind of the same thing. And I remember we took a drive over Reno um, for something. And so, you know, went to my dad took me a couple malls and we were doing whatever. And I remember picking up and it was the same thing. I'd read about you two enough to go, okay, I think I like these guys, even though I haven't heard a note. And so I picked up uh, under a blood red sky mm-hmm. and I just was like, okay, I just want to see what this is about. And I remember listening to it and it was just like, it never left my, my, my tape deck at all. And I just thought this is, I don't know who this is, but I'm absolutely in love with them now. Um, you know, just from that article. And then I, it was shortly after that, the unforgettable fire was released. And it was funny because I remember I would find like small pockets of friends. Um, you know, like when I say friends, like maybe one or two people that were like, 
oh, you like you too, too? And I was just like, yeah, man, like, I really love this stuff. And it, they kind of started to blow up. And then obviously the Joshua Tree hit. And, you know, everyone, thank, thank you to MTV. And I was like, oh, man, I'm a huge U2 fan. Okay, name anything before the Joshua Tree. Um, uh... no, I, the first thing by U2 that I heard was uh, WYFE out of Rockford, Illinois, put New Year's Day in rotation. And I remember the first time I heard it, it's like, wow, is this a new Blue Oyster Cult song? <laughs> so that was you know because they, they didn't announce they didn't announce the band and it's like that's a pretty cool song but it you know it seemed pretty dark and sinister but it still had some of those you know i caught the lyrical references didn't know, know anything about the troubles in ireland at the time but so yeah it was it was, that was educational and then i remember that probably would have been the same year that one of the kids that uh graduated and left town moved away to the big city came back during the school year uh, and was uh, borrowing the gym you know i had i was on the track team i ran cross okay. track so we had to we had to work out uh and this kid that had moved away to chicago came back and put in chronic town by rem and i asked him if it was a new tom petty song and oh man he yeah he gave me the whole you know hayseed you don't know anything routine but that was that was how i was introduced to rem and and then I went out and you know I we I was traveling somewhere with my dad and and uh, went into looking uh, it was right when uh, Reckoning was coming out so okay Reckoning was my first REM got that on on cassette it's funny because I I was kind of a fan of REM like the little bit that I had heard and then um, I remember I remember buying Green when it came out. Um, and my friend had, uh, it's not Fables of the Reconstruction. Yeah. Well, that, was, that's the third album. Was Okay. What was what was the one that was, oh, Document. That's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah, great. My friend had Document. And so I listened to that a little bit and I was like, oh, okay, this is kind of cool. And then I, and then I bought Green and then I, and then I met a friend that summer who was a diehard rem fan and he had all the singles he had everything the b-sides the works and so because of my buddy mike jensen that for me was just like okay i'm i'm really gonna check these guys out now and i remember him buying the um uh the vhs of the uh of the green tour there and i think it was like in south carolina or north carolina or wherever and i just remember watching that thing just being mesmerized and again it I think for me, that was kind of like the cool thing is I feel like 89 was a huge year for me um, as far as discovering bands. Um, 90, 91, the same thing. Uh, that's when I got into really like Public Enemy, started listening to um, uh, who else? Uh, Soundgarden at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of those bands. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's just funny because I, I have the same kind of thing where you you just have those markers and, and for us it was you know i mean for us the really the big thing was especially for our town was when we got cable and we got mtv yeah i know i know headbangers ball was the big deal uh but for me it was 120 minutes because you know that's that's where they played the camper van beethoven that's uh, where they played rem yeah oh key lime pie is one of my what my one of my watershed records for sure so I was very late to camper. I didn't get into them until Key Lime Pie was coming out. And then I, you know, then they quit 
for a long time. Yeah. I didn't get into um, Revolutionary Sweetheart. That's the album that I got into them on. And then I think it was the next year is when they dropped um, Key Lime Pie. And the, the cool thing was, is the guy, Mike Jensen, I mentioned earlier to you, that got me turned on to R.E.M., um, I was a really big 10,000 Maniacs fan. Mm-hmm. And so what was cool was that summer that we were working together, we found out that they were playing in Berkeley. And so we took his rickety pickup truck, um, heater on the dead of summer, and drove up there. Cool thing was is we got there and it was sold out. And there's a reason it was a cool thing is we originally we planned out going. Uh, there were supposed to be like seven of us going. And then five of them all backed out. So it's just Mike and I were like, oh, okay, this is even better then. And we drove up there and um, they said, hey, sold out. I can't buy anything. So we're talking to scalpers. And my friend's like, you know, what's the most amount of money that you're going to want to pay? And I was like, I'll, I'll pay 40 bucks. And I think like, you know, it was like 18 something for lawn seats. Yeah. Well, he, uh, I was asking him a question. He's like, hey, wait, 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 hold up, hold up, hold up. And I'm like, okay. And we hear this lady, and she's telling scalpers, and she's just like, man, I'm not going to sell you my tickets. Like, screw you guys. You're going to jack them up for somebody else. She's just like, I want to sell them to someone who's actually going in. And so nice. So we walk up to her, and again, group of seven, now whittled down to two. That's exactly how many tickets she had. And she, she grilled us, like, you sure you're going? And we're like, lady, like, this is my buddy's truck right here. Like, <laughs> you know, this is where we came from told her story and she's like okay and she gave us a story her and her <clears throat> about her and her husband and how he couldn't make it and she wanted to go solo um she's like well there's reserve seating and so 2350 $23.50 for reserve seating i still remember this because i just i look back on that now and i'm like oh my gosh we walk in there they walk us around they walk us around they walk us down the ground floor they walk us up to the uh, to the front of the main of the stage there and the guy counts four rows back we were dead center four rows from the stage wow and all of a sudden it, it didn't stay on there at the time i just remember seeing 10,000 maniacs well the crazy thing is is all of a sudden they're like hey we're going to welcome to the stage camper van beethoven and it was just like, are you kidding me? Like my first major gig and this is what I get. Like it, it couldn't have turned out any better. Yeah, that's a good start. And yeah, I mean, it just, and then from there, that's when I really started to see a bunch of shows um, in Fresno. I had a lot more friends that were like, man, I'm totally down to go to shows. And so I caught, um, I'm trying to think, I saw Living Color. Um, I caught Eric Johnson on the uh, Avi Musicom tour, which was, he was fantastic. Um, so yeah, so really started to see a lot of shows at that point in time. Motley Crue, the Dr. Feelgood tour, which is still kind of funny to say, because uh, I was working up at a Christian camp and they chastised uh, <laughs> the other people for going. No one ever knew that I went though until it was too late. And they were like, uh, so did you actually, yes, I did. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and so then, and I caught, I got to see Tom Petty on the um, into the Great Wide Open tour, wow. and it's funny because I'd never really been a fan of Tom Petty, and then when I had when I had seen him on that tour, it really made me go, okay, there's a lot I think I've missed. So I went back and started listening to his earlier stuff, and 
in another one, he's he's been a constant. Um, and it's funny because I I think I messaged you and was just like, yeah, let's let's do some top ten lists, which that turned out to be hilarious on my end as well. I was just like, oh man, I think I've just banged myself into trying to figure out who my top tens are or who even my top albums are of decades. <laughs> so yeah, it's very that's a difficult exercise. It's, yeah, it's a painful exercise to go through, and really, ultimately, nobody's that interested in hearing what your <laughs> top ten records are. It means a lot more to you than it does to everybody else. I, I run into that problem all the time. Yes, so, and the, and that's hilarious that you say that. But, um, but I was thinking though that is one of one of my albums from the nineties that, that it's a definite go to though was uh, Wildflowers. Oh, um, oh, for for Pete's sake, yeah, it has to be. I mean, holy cow. And it's funny because I feel like there's there's times to where when I first heard it, when it first came out, a, a buddy of mine had it. And so I listened to it. But I think I mostly listened to it, you know, for like the radio hits kind of a thing. And then as I've gotten older, I've gone back and I've revisited it. And, and man, what a solid listen all the way through. And I know he was going through a really rough time at that time. Um, but just what a great album. And I think where I'm kind of going with this is it's long, long circle around is when you were saying that you would, it got to interview Mike Campbell. I think that album really, well, especially a seeing him live, but then listening to wildflowers just really solidified how great of, of a guitarist Mike Campbell is even, even just for me to where I, I love to listen to that guy play. Yeah. So one of the, one of the most capable and one of the most tasteful players rock and roll has ever produced. Yes, exactly. He's, he's a he's a great role model to have. And and I think that there's there's a few guys out there that I listen to that um they don't have you know because I mean a growing up in the like I graduated in eighty seven and it's funny because you know hair metal at that time and then and then you had all the Inves and the longer the solo the badder the guy was yada yada yada. And I think for me, like one of the first solos I've ever heard that um, very short, but just added so much into it was um, 77's uh, Film at 11. Mm -hmm. That solo that Mike puts in there is just short, but it's one of the most heartfelt solos in, for, for just a, you know, for just less than a minute long. Yeah, well, Mike's filtered every great player and songwriter from, you know, that that's one of the reasons I love Mike so much is I know he's he's got all my obsessions, uh, plus lots of talent. So uh, he's good at filtering those those same influences that we would have had, but he's all over the map. You know, you could go to him, the Everly Brothers or Roy Orbison, and he's as knowledgeable as he is on the Smiths or the Heartbreakers or or Rush or Muddy Waters or anybody, whoever it is, he'll speak authoritatively about them and he'll know how to play it and how to write it. For crying out loud, the guy can sing like Art Garfunkel if he wants to. Oh, so, yeah. You know, it's nuts. And and again, yeah, what, my second meeting with him, when, when he, he still didn't know who I was, I was duct taping Elvis Presley sideburns to his face. Los <laughs> Angeles. <laughs> On the world famous Sunset Strip. That was, uh, I guess that was, uh, what would that have been? That would have been Green Room Serenade. Oh, wow. Okay. 
superfluous, but no cigar. They were, they were this close to getting some sort of general market distribution and attention for those records and for songs they were already playing. Like if you, if you loved here, you'd be home by now. Yeah. So, you know, they were, they were, they were on the path. But yeah, I, Thousand Maniacs. The first time I saw them was the the Wishing Chair tour because they opened for REM on the Fables of the Reconstruction tour. Okay, that was also when I was a freshman at U of I. Same place. I saw the Church play on the Starfish tour in 1988 with Tom Verlaine from Television opening. Oh. When I know what a television was, uh, even though REM had what well, REM had been covering Ceno Evil on the Document tour and. And, you know, so the church had to come through and sort of hit me over the head with television before I finally got it. But then, you know, (laughs) Marky Moon is probably as heretical as as it is to say, uh, considering what it leaves out. But Marky Moon is probably my, if you said, what's your favorite record from the 70s, it'd probably be Marky Moon. And that's in a list with Heaven Tonight and Hemispheres and, and the, the fine art of surfacing by the rats and Regatta de Blanc and damn the torpedoes and everything else. Exile on Main Street, Rise and Fall of Ziggy, Fires from Mars. I would still probably put the television record on top for that decade. I I think mine from the seventies was the the Boston uh, debut. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, just because that's what opened up the floodgates of rock and roll for me. Um, I was a pawn in my mother's record buying schemes. I know I mentioned that on the last podcast, but I think that's really the first record I remember hearing and thinking like, nope, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do your bidding anymore. You want to buy Barry Manilow albums, you spend your money on Barry Manilow. Um, just yeah, Mark. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a tough coming of age moment for a mother. Yeah. Yes. Like, he doesn't like my music anymore. He's nope. not going to buy any more Billy Joel records. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for me, uh, Marky Moon uh, took the place of uh, Quadrophenia. So Quadrophenia had been my be-all, end-all 1970s rock record for a long time until I finally got the television bug. And Quadrophenia is still a great record. Oh, man. All-time greats. And then I went with, I think, um, I'm trying to think of what else I shot. Oh, uh, Allman Brothers Live at the Fillmore East. Mm -hmm. I didn't hear that until later. And I unfortunately I lumped them in with um, like jam bands like The Dead. Yep. And I'm from Northern California. I'm supposed to love The Dead. I don't. <laughs> uh, I, I yeah. not my cup of tea. It's fine. I know that there's some beloved people that I absolutely admire that think they're the greatest thing since sliced bread. I am not that guy. Um, but you know there were there were a ton of bands and I, and I think for me, that's, that's one of those unfortunate bands that I lumped in was like, Oh, the Allman brothers. Great. And all I had to hear was a memory of Elizabeth Reed to realize like, okay, I'll shut up and listen to this thing. Um, and for me, that was just such a fantastic album. Um, but I had, I had to figure out that the Allman brothers really had nothing to do with Leonard Skinner. (laughs) I got that. Once I got that settled. I was all in for the Almond Brothers. <laughs> and then the other band that you mentioned that I did not get into until I had heard um, uh, 
stop making sense. And I know that they released some fantastic stuff in 77. Um, but that's the talking heads though. When I had heard stop making sense, um, I heard it the same summer that, um, uh, Oh gosh, I can't think of the name of it. Now little creatures came out. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I was just like, I don't know what this is. And then I remember seeing the live concert, uh, video, of stop making sense and heard all the other songs that were on there. And I was like, okay, like, okay, these guys are fantastic. And then going back and discovering the stuff in the seventies talking heads, man, they're such a great band. It could have been really different for me. I saw, I, I, when I was in high school, I got put on to, it's a long story getting there, but I got put onto a, a legislative committee. Uh, called the Illinois Council of Youth. So it was, it was a bunch of high school kids that would be pulled either into Springfield or Chicago to talk about uh, legislation that was going to affect uh, kids down for, from grades K through 12. And one time they brought us into Chicago and, and put us up at the state of Illinois building for a couple of days. And I forget which theater it was, but I, I, I should. But I wasn't from Chicago at the time. So uh, there was a local theater that was showing uh, it would it'd be the type of theater that would have been showing the Rocky horror picture show in town. Okay. Showing uh, stop making sense as a first run film. I watched that movie five times in the span of three days. So, and if, if Adrian blue had stuck it out with that band for another three months, I think he would have been on that film. Is that right? No disrespect to Alex Weir who tears it up in that film. But if blue had been in the band up until just before they, they went and did that. I think it was within half a year, anyway. Oh wow! Okay, but, but I would have I would have had a big jump start on the whole Frank Zappa thing. What he eventually did with the Bears, uh, King Crimson, all that stuff. I I didn't find out find out about anything that Blue had done until I moved to Champagne. Okay, and I, Champagne just after he left Champagne. So they had recorded, they had rehearsed and recorded the King Crimson records there, and he had started the Bears, and then they uh, relocated to. Uh, Ohio and Kentucky. But the Remain in Light tour, of course, he he was the guitarist on the Remain in Light tour. The biggest film that you can find from there is their, their 1980 show in Rome, which has a lot of the same stuff uh, in, the, in the set list that went into Stop Making Sense with Blue still playing. But that's never been released that I know of. It's just you can find the, I think it was used for broadcast or cable or something like that, but never put into commercial release. Huh, but it's on the internet. You can find it on Facebook. Um, definitely have to watch that then. Um, I'm trying to think if there's. Man, you're such a wealth of knowledge. I mean, this is like so fun just to talk, because like I said, there's there's those occasional people that I meet where it's like, okay, I can listen to this guy for hours. Um, no useless musical trivia are us yeah. all day, all night. That's what my wife says to us, like, gosh, like, sorry you couldn't remember Hannah's, you know, dental appointment yesterday, but I know that you were researching out U2. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who engineered the second U2 record? Uh, <laughs> who took over from Gavin Friday? Yeah. All that. Yeah. But what's funny, though, is when you say Daniel, uh, Daniel and Watt, the funny thing is, is, um, you know, all these guys that you're mentioning, I'd, I'd known from, from uh, 
just from reading up of them doing the Bowie albums like Eno. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, when he did um, the Joshua Tree. And then one album that I never discovered until later was um, Emmylou Harris's Wrecking Ball. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. And that's all time classic. I got to see that tour. That was a life changer. That was that tour. I saw it. I saw that at the Troubadour in Los Angeles. So I don't know if they'd even like left town to go on the tour. Well, Emmy, Emmy had because she was from Nashville. But um, other guys in the band, I believe. So it was Daryl Jones on bass. So it was Buddy Miller playing guitar. Uh, and it was Brian Blade Jr. on drums, not Brady. Or, or no, sorry, it was Brady Blade on drums, not Brian. And then Lanois was was local at that point, so he came along. And um, I remember the sh- the Innocence Mission opened the show. Oh my gosh! It, 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 on the gl- playing Glow, so that was gorgeous. And they finished. They finished their whatever they gave him forty five minutes. Uh, and then it was another two hours because Brady was asleep at the hotel and nobody could roust him. So before they, before Brady showed up, they, they finally gave up at some point. And I was standing next to the drummer from the Innocence Mission in the balcony at, at the Troubadour. And the, the band comes out and this weird, tiny Tim looking dude with a, with a messed up cowboy hat sits down at the drum set. And he turns to me and he says, I told him I'd give anything to play with this band and dan overrode me and this is the only instrument he doesn't play like a stone genius that's what he said and lanois uh was the most awkward looking wind-up monkey drummer i had ever seen in my life (laughs) and he played about 40 minutes of that show before brady showed up like looking really sheepish and sat down and of course he played like a million bucks but Lamois came back out for the encore. And I remember they, when they played May This Be Love, it's the last time, this was 1995, it's 25 years ago, it's the last time live music made me cry. It was that powerful. I was just overcome. And, I, you know, and I've been chasing that experience ever since then. So, yeah, I've got an awful lot of love for, for Daniel Lamois' production and Emmylou Harris because of that record. And they, they did a reunion tour five years ago, the, you know, the 20th anniversary of Wrecking Ball, and they came through and played Chicago, and I gave them another shot. I had hoped it would work. It didn't work the same <laughs> time, but it was still really good. It's kind of... Now, if you, have you seen the um, the Sonic Highways? Uh, no, no, I haven't sat down to watch them. So I'm, I'm aware of it, but no, I haven't watched it. Those Those, for me were i mean i've i've always loved all things dave Grohl. um mm-hmm. i especially i mean i have a huge heart for the foo fighters um again uh, i was in i think i think him and i are the same age if not really close to it but i just remember hearing the first album thinking like okay this is really interesting because i like nirvana i just didn't think that they were everything that everyone has said that they are, if that makes sense. Um, That's not take away anything from how good they were. They just, I wasn't the huge fanboy like a lot of my friends were and like a lot of other people were. Um, I get the genius of them, but that's kind of where it ended for me. Yeah, there there are plenty of times when just the hype shuts you down. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. If you weren't right at the front end of that whole thing and where that depends a lot where you are regionally. And of course, MTV had a lot to do with that. 
you heard a lot about Nirvana before you got a chance to hear Nevermind. Yep. And so, you know, that was the same. That was when I was introduced to Adam again. You know? Okay. Uh, I'm pick, I pick Adam again. So that, you know, the homeboys became a record I played just without stopping it while everybody else was playing. Never mind, I was playing homeboys to death. Oh, yeah. I, and, and that's and that's but, one of those albums that gets the 90s nod for me is, is yeah. definitely homeboys. Dig, uh, Dig is the one, Dig is the be all end all as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, I certainly had a pretty robust obsession with, with homeboys. But when uh, when the when the first Foo Fighters record came out, I I went out and bought it. I had read about it, and it's like, oh, that sounds like fun. And I got that man. Did I I played that record to death? Mm-hmm. Played it all the time. And then and then he comes out with you know what uh, color in the shape? Yeah, color in the shape. And holy cow, you know that just I mean, and the and the fun thing for me was is you know again I liked all the hits, never disliked the hits. But some of the deeper stuff on there was just fantastic. February Stars, um, you know, just so many great cuts on that album. But but when I I, I got the um, the Sonic Highways and watching those, I mean, there's guys that kind of do their work, but Dave Grohl just went really really deep into the musical soul of each city, and it was cool because when they did um, the L.A. Uh, DLA episode, they had uh, Joe Walsh come on and play. and But they talked about um, Rancho de la Luna, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, Out there in the Joshua Tree Desert, um, Hami, you know, has recorded a bunch of the stuff there. But they kind of gave the backstory. And, they, and he actually interviewed Lanois for quite a bit um, to where he talked about just recording in there. And it's just really cool how he you know, how he threw all those bands in there, but he really does his research. And for me, it kind of made me go back and go like, man, I, I really want to listen to these guys now and find out what they're about. Um, you know, he, he really threw uh, Rocky Erickson and the uh, 13th, 13th floor elevators, like a lot of love when he did the Austin, you know and I mean? There's tons of other bands that he could have done, but I thought it was really cool that he talked about them and he just really reached deep, which I really thought was cool. Um, I think, yeah, I think Grohl is a great person to have the platform he has. He's, he's obviously still a kid at heart and just loves rock and roll music and it's infectious. So whether I, whether I'm into a lot of their music or not, I'll always, I'll always be glad that they're around doing it. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't been as into the last few Foo Fighters records, I but I don't think they're made for me. But at the same time, Everybody in that band, I think, is doing it for the right reason. So, uh, yeah, I hope I hope they may they continue forever. Yeah, and and I and I'm the same way. I, you know, concrete and gold, good. But I mean, I really, I really, I mean, Sonic Highways was good too. But I really loved. Um, oh man, I'm drawing a blank. Wasting light, uh-huh. wasting light for me. Holy cow, that album was just so good, um, all the way through. But. Yeah, anyways, I, I just think it was really cool how he did a lot of that, and it really opened up my eyes to a lot of bands that I wouldn't have otherwise really kind of given a nod to or even heard of. Um, you know, I was telling a friend, well, actually, um, you know you know the band Staves Acre? Sure, of course. Um, well, Dirk Lemonies mm-hmm. is uh, the um, personal assistant to Zach Brown. Oh, wow. Yeah, 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 that's right. 
I would I could have pulled that out of a lineup, but I probably wouldn't have remembered it as a data point. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. And it and it was just and, and and that's another one of those things where he talks about, you know, recording in Zach Brown's studio when they do the Nashville episode and just how they met and he and he tells Zach's story. And it's it's really cool because I think a lot of times, you know, at least for me, you, you kind of lump people into groups and you're like, oh, they're whatever genre and they do this and, and oh, blah, blah, blah. I'll never give them a chance. But I think the cool thing was, is, you know, he talked a lot about the Nashville sound. He talked a lot about the country music because uh, Nate Mandel's a huge, you know, his, his dad, that's what his dad raised him on. And mm-hmm. so it was really cool, like even to hear Chris Shiflett talk about it and all those kind of guys. Um, but again, it just really kind of brought it back around for like, man, okay, I'm going to have to check these guys out. And then you find out like, okay, yeah, so some of his stuff is on my cup of tea, but good gravy, the guy can play like nobody's business. And um, and I think that's the really cool thing is when you when you finally delve into music, and I'll be honest. When I saw the um, oh goodness the winery dogs, I went for Portnoy and Sheehan, not knowing anything about Kotzen, because I'd read up and it was like oh he's been in Poison and who he played in I, I think Motley Crue for a spell or whatever and it was just like uh like okay fine whatever. He blew me away his voice and his playing was right up there with, with Sheen and, and Portnoy as far as the caliber of, of, of musicianship. Plus he brings some soul and R and B into what he does that people don't expect. That's what mm-hmm. makes, but I, I interviewed him for the sun times as well. And he was, he was really reluctant to talk uh, because I, I think it was not to me per se, but I think to anybody, cause I think everybody came at him as, Oh, he, the guy from, that was in whatever it was, Quiet Riot or whatever. Yeah. I'll let he, whatever band it was that he was in for a while. Poison. You just said that. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, I, I kind of came to him as a solo act. But I love what he does with the winery dogs because he brings more of the, the soul music influence into the into the prog rock that, that Portnoy brings and the, just the crazy technique that Sheen brings. So, and it was... Oh, what were you say? Sorry, nothing important. I just said that's that's a good group. Those guys do well together, especially knowing that you know they're they're a band that sets aside time. It's like okay, we're going to get together this week. We're going to write an album and record it, and then we've got this time slotted for a tour. So it isn't the kids that all grew up together and they spend the two years between tours hashing out songs. You know, they just they wake up and that's what they do. So. And they do it when they get together and they do a good job of it. And their shows are lots of fun. Yeah. And, and it was one of those things to where, you know, more and more people started to pour into it. And it really was a fun show. Um, and it was hilarious because I had to, I had to get up, at, I had to be at work at, at like 445 the next morning. And the show mm-hmm. I think ended like close to 11. And I kept thinking like, man, I need to get home. And <laughs> it was funny because the uh, the young kid in me was just like, okay, how long have you wanted to meet Portnoy for? And and what would you give to meet Sheehan? And so I remember driving home in my car, and I saw the tour bus sitting out there, and I thought, I'm just going to chance it. Turned it around and stood there and waited. And I actually met <laughs> this guy that I've become really good friends with. His name is Dio, and he is nothing but a character. He's been involved with all sorts of uh, stage stuff. Um, here locally in, in in LA, and um, 
I heard this guy talking and I was just like, who is this character? And then some friends that I've had for years, you know, came up and were, were chatting with him and he knew them all. And so we sparked a really cool friendship out of that concert. Um, but it was one of those things to where, you know, sure enough, here comes Billy, here comes Mike. Uh, we didn't get to meet Cots and he already snuck onto the bus beforehand. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but holy cow. I mean, Sheen was just so... Uh, so nice, and and so was Mike. I mean, both of those guys just just couldn't help themselves but to talk and just make conversation, and just the nicest guys in the world. And for me, that was huge because, like I said, I mean, I, I remember Sheen from, like I said, the Eat 'Em and Smile, and yeah. I remember, you know, uh, you know, like I said, Portnoy from from that, you know, from uh, you know, images and words, and just. Right. Like, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe this. And so I just remember going to work. And I don't, I don't think I stopped smiling for like two weeks after that. Um, but just that caliber of musicianship and just being able to go and see a live show. And, and that's what I miss a lot as well is, um, you know, Animals as Leaders is supposed to come. I was really looking forward to that. And then, you know, maybe heading over to Denver and seeing some shows there kind of a thing. But, um, but yeah, and, you know, yeah. and I wish... <laughs> The one, the one thing I do wish, though, is every time I see that the choir is playing a show in Nashville and Mike's coming out for it, I'm like, oh, you're killing me. Like, how do I get out there? Yeah, every once in a while you got to get on a plane or something because they don't all come to your town. <clears throat> nope. I mean, I, I told you I'm a huge Boomtown Rats fan, but I didn't get into the Boomtown Rats until the year they broke up. So, oh. they. They, they got back together in 2013, but they won't come to the States because Bob can't draw in the States. He can sell out every festival throughout Europe, but he can't he can't fill a big room in 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 the U.S. anymore. Or I don't know how he does in Canada. But uh, so they put out a new record for the first time in 36 years this year, and they booked 10 days through the U.K., and I said, well, if I ever want to see him, got to do it. So I don't do a lot of traveling like you have, but I know, I know, you know, a little bit of my story. I, I said, I've got to do it. I flew to Australia in 2017 to see Midnight Oil when they got back together for the first time in 20 years. And so uh, since, since uh, that went well, I figured I should probably take my chance to go see the Boomtown Rats too. So I, I bought tickets to go see him in Cambridge and York and London. Oh, wow. And they all, of course, you know, they all got yep. COVID. So, and they rebooked everything for November, but I, those are going to have to fall off the calendar too. I'm sure of it. I don't know if I'll ever get to see him, but at least I know I, I made a, a real attempt. I was going to actually do it. Yeah. But the, the Kotzen thing was interesting because I think it's the same everywhere. He's the first one on the bus. He keeps to himself. I, I I get the impression that he doesn't like the particular type of attention that he would get from a particular type of fan who knows him from a pocket of his career that he's not trying to promote. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but once in a while, once in a while, I, I, I would get to meet people because I wrote a feature on them and I had talked to Kotzen on the phone and he said, you should come say hello at the show. And so I, at the, after the show, I said, uh, Richie invited me to say hello. And, you know, I kind of cut a raised eyebrow as in Richie doesn't invite a lot of people to come say hello. So I said, well, I'm here from the Sun Times and I've got the, the story to pass along to him. 
And, and the guy said, okay, wait here, went onto the bus because, you know, Richie was already on the bus and the other guys were, were talking to fans. And he said, okay, come on. And I came on the bus and I had to give him the story first and sit there and watch him read the story before he would talk to me. It was really, I, I knew I was being, uh, he, he was ready to come get me if he didn't like what he read. Yeah. And he, and he finished and he put it in and goes, okay, that was a good one. <laughs> nice to meet you. So he was, he was nice after that. I, I just think he's real, I think he's really careful. Yeah. And, and, and not, and not without reason. And that's what I was just going to say. You can't, you can't blame him at that point. Cause man, there are some people, well, I mean, you know, let's look at, you know, Rolling Stone and Rush. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, gosh, but you know, one of the, one of the coolest things for me was even not being able to be there was just watching that ovation that Rush got mm. the rock and roll hall of fame. I, I just, you know, as dumb as it sounds, it warmed my heart. Having loved that band for as long as I have, I was like, that's really cool to see. And I know it was the first year that fans could vote. And I know there that's was right. that. What happened? You open up the fan vote. But. Fans in. So. Yeah, that was fun. They they did that. They did that well, too. Just like everything else. Yep. And I just. The speech. Oh, gosh. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and it's so funny because I, I, uh, you know, I, I remember buying the, the documentary as soon as it came out and I've watched that thing a hundred times over and, um, it's just fun to go back and revisit that stuff. And, you know, life has changed, you know, just with our kids, different things like that. So, um, you know, it's just fun and, and, and really one of the, one of the biggest joys I've had is, so our youngest, she has autism. And so for us to get her to the point to where she, we could even listen to music in the car without it freaking her out, um, was, has been quite, uh, quite painstakingly long, especially for me, as much as I love music, you know? And so what's her age? She is 11 years old. Mm -hmm. And, um, so she's, she's still, she's probably around a, like a, a, maybe a kindergarten, a first grade level of schooling. Mm -hmm. Um, but she's, she's, she's very, very brilliant, but she still talks like a toddler and she is the sweetest little girl until she has a meltdown. So mm -hmm. I've had to kick the vinyl goodbye. I've, I've now began to, uh, finally start to purchase CDs again, are uh, new to us, but a rather old model. Um, vehicle that we have has a really good system in it surprisingly and so uh, a friend of mine hooked me up with some rust CDs and so it was funny because uh, her therapist was like you know like you just need to start introducing this stuff he's just like you know it's it, it might be hard at first we'll see how it goes well I was just like screw it I'm in the mood for rush so I put in moving pictures and Hannah has absolutely fallen in love with Tom Sawyer and so it's hilarious. So now that's that's hers and my music. And mm -hmm. so we, we set up a little bowling alley in the hallway for her. And so I'll put on music, you know, just to kind of, like the therapist says, whatever. And it's hilarious because I'll say, well, what do you want to listen to? Rush. <laughs> and and it's, it's just like so fun for me to have someone else besides, 
you know, my wife or whoever, where she just loves to listen to Rush with me. And it's like the one kid that I would have never expected in a million years. I tried to pass it on to my son and my son was like, nope, this is, can't stand his voice. My other daughter, she's, you know, uh, she's an absolute doll, but her taste of music is definitely not my taste of music. So, <laughs> right. She's 12, but it's just, it's a riot though. Cause Hannah will come home and she'll tell Don, like, Hey, can you put on rush? Don just looks at me like, are you kidding me? Nope. Don. She's got taste. She, <laughs> I'm so excited over that. So yeah, well that's worth it for sure. Yeah. And it's just, but it's, again, it's one of those things though, to where, she's connecting with me through music in as much as, you know, I connected with my grandmother and even my own mother through music and through friends. Um, it's really cool to have my daughter connecting with me in, in, through that medium as well. And so it's just been, just been a joy to be able to do that with her lately. So it's been really fun. So, but Jeff, it is, uh, what are you looking at? 12.15 there, your time, sir? Yep, 12.15 Central Time. Now, do you deadlines you need to meet? Yeah, they never go, They never quite go away. Oh, man, I bet. I uh, I, I wrote up the, the... The last two things I reviewed are Wayne Everett's new record, Two Ghosts, oh. and uh, the Flaming Pie Deluxe Box Edition, so... I actually got my hands on a nice Paul McCartney set. That's what I did last last two nights. Oh, nice! I am so excited to to have. Uh... Oh my gosh, I'm blanking. Sorry, <laughs> Wayne. <laughs> have, to have Wayne on here. Goodness, I'm not yeah. getting Paul McCartney. I'd love to get Paul, but I'm not getting Paul. But I am. I am ecstatic to have Wayne on here. Um, two Ghosts is just such a brilliant album, and that's that's a band. I mean, I remember. I was messaging him not long ago and, and telling him how I remembered seeing him uh, undercover and Violet Burning at a uh, Youth for Christ uh, shindig in Fresno in fall of 91. And it was hilarious because Ojo went off on the T-shirts at the time. And he had talked about how they had to open for fear at one point. And you, you could just watch the guy that promoted this thing. Like... Yep. Um, uh, like Dying a little bit inside. Yeah, like just like, hey man, could you just tell their kids there's free burgers over here and give them the four spiritual laws, please? Because this is just not going to end well. And I remember, I just was thinking, this is probably the greatest speech I've ever heard because he just <laughs> hit the nail on so many things. Like, I was just like, God, everything this guy is saying is right, especially working up at a Christian camp at that time. We'd see the youth groups come through with the shirts. I'm sure that I will know. Actually, I take that back. I did never. I never bought a cheesy Christian shirt. I've bought some really cheesy music, but I've never bought the t-shirts to go along with it. So I do feel good about that. But uh, man, it was hilarious though. Yeah, because that guy. And it was funny because a few months later, um, I was working with a buddy of mine, and he said, "Hey, man, you know, I'm having my my uh, 25th birthday. He's like, I'd love for you to come down." And so I went down there and he helped out with Youth for Christ. And so he introduced me to the guy. And I probably should have never <laughs> said it, but I was like, oh man, I was just like, yeah, I said, I've actually met you. I said, you set up the, you know, the yada, yada, yada. And he, he looked at me and goes, oh man, that was a train wreck. 
And I was like, well, what do you mean? And he's just like, he's like, Ojo Taylor. He's just like, he just, I, I couldn't believe what he said. And I was just like, honestly, man, I thought he hit the nail on the head. I was like, I, I thought it was fantastic. And it, you could just see him like seething right there and then. And I was just like, anyways, uh, how's your yeah. idea? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, well, yeah, Joe's always been, uh, well, he's, he's set on different sides of the fence, but he's always been consistent. He's pretty true to himself. Yes. And he's no fool. So when he's got something to say, he knows how to say it. But I, for my uh, 14 years in Los Angeles, I had two favorite bands the entire time I was there, and they were the Autumns and the Lassie Foundation. And uh, Two Ghosts works pretty well for a fan of the Lassie Foundation. Yes. Next pretty well. Oh, and, I, I like and I'm gonna have to ask him, but I am, I'm, I'm feeling like uh, the uh, "Hey Skinny" song. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling like that's that's for for Steve. Yeah, it is. Um, if you get Steve's first solo record, you can yep. hear you can hear "Digging Your Style" and uh, what's the other one? Uh, there's "Digging Your." There's another one for for Wayne, or it, I think it's uh, Winnipesaukee. Those are those those on his record are for Wayne. I need to drag that album out again, man. That's such a great album. Oh yeah, Skinny, right? Is that yeah. the name of that? Mm-hmm. And it's and it's it's funny too because like <clears throat> that was the other thing I was gonna say is I absolutely love Derry's voice. I never knew how good of a voice Steve had though until I saw the um whatever live at cornerstone it was mm-hmm. for um free flying soul where he did i think he came out and he sang the warbler by himself at the end of it yeah fantastic he's got yeah he's got an ideal voice for that for that neil young folk type of thing and it works really well in choir arrangements in contrast mm-hmm. Derry's is so pure and melodic and and Steve's is, you know, uh, pretty raw in some ways. And, and there's a sometimes Derry doesn't seem like he's a human being. You know, he seems like he must be, you know, part angel or something yeah. like that. <laughs> That's exactly and, it. And and Steve's this is really down to earth, and it's good for his lyrics. I appreciate it a lot. That was one of the cool things is when I met him. I just said, man, I said I just want to say thank you for your lyrics. And I just said you really write from a deep place. And he's just like, yeah, man. It's like sometimes tragedy, tragedy will do that to you, and I just remember thinking that because, you know, especially being raised in the church in the, you know, my my formative years were in the '80s, and it really was just that. And I'm not dogging it. I'm still a big, you know, still have my faith, still celebrate it, but it was just that like everybody's happy, everybody's smiling, and everybody's just whatever, and and I think that we kind of like at least in the circles where I was raised in was just, you know, put on a happy face kind of a thing. And so to hear those kind of lyrics, you know, and to be able to read along to, I was like, dang, this guy's really, really going deep here. And it, it's always resonated with me. Well, that's, that's what made, uh, that's what made him my, my number one influence as a, as a lyricist or as a songwriter. Cause I wanted to write things that were true. I wanted to write things out of experience that actually meant something and that somebody else might connect with because that's what's happened to me. 
ever since I started listening to choir songs. And other and and if I don't do that, if I just if I try to write strictly a song for the purpose of praise and worship or something like that, then it feels like a homework assignment. You know, I can write I can write a song about anything somebody wants me to write about. But if I want to write a song that's going to mean something to me, it's got to be something that I feel that or that I've gone through that really stopped me in my tracks and forced me to try to find a way to put it into words, which is what I think Steve has done for 40 years. Yep. And I think that's really the common thread between, you know, again, between those those four bands is every one of them wrote from a place of honesty, mm-hmm. you know, especially during a time when it was the, oh, how many Jesuses did she say or, you know, yeah, whatever was going on. And so and not to dog any of that by any means, because there's a lot of fantastic artists, but. I think that's really what, what helped me quite a bit was even just like, okay, these are guys that are asking questions and, and um, you know, and, and I, I just remember being really excited to hear them. Like, I mean, K-Rock out of LA and, and they're playing um, uh, off a of wide-eyed wonder um, someone to hold on to, mm-hmm. you know, and it was just like, wait a minute, these, this is our guys on the, on the, on the big radio. You know, the same thing when Mercy Mercy came on MTV. It was like, these these are our guys kind of a thing. And it just felt, it just felt really good. And they just felt, you know, it, it was so deserving for them as well to be able to get that, that market. And obviously, you know, I think we all wish it would have been a much bigger, bigger payout for them. But yeah, but they took a shot. They did their best. They took a shot. And those, those were the type of things that, that encouraged me in my own faith encouraged me more than you know again like you say not to disrespect a, a band like Whiteheart or somebody like amy grant uh they meant a lot to other people at different periods in their life but that wasn't what was speaking to me it was mm-hmm. what I would, you know stories that terry taylor was writing or steve was writing or you know steve taylor also and you know steve taylor i felt like straddled those worlds really well he did it with a lot of integrity and a lot of intelligence but yeah, he could get away with a lot more stuff with the youth leaders than than say uh, Mike Rowe could have. <laughs> it's funny. I had a friend that was a youth pastor, and it was funny because he. Uh, I think that was one of the things that he had asked me was just like, he's just like, so are you a fan of the seventy sevens? And I'm like, yeah. And he's just like, I don't know, man. Have you heard that one song? And I forget what it was. But it was it was super funny. So some kid in my youth group brought this song to me, and I just thought, "Wow, that's a really good question. Why are we playing this here?" And I, and I just was kind of like, "What? Like, uh, like one more one more nail to drive somebody away as soon as you start shutting that stuff out." Yeah, and and I just kind of chuckled, like, uh, "Okay, man, like have have fun on have fun dying on that hill." If that's what you choose to go out on. That's uh, that's kind of lame, but okay. But right. well, Jeff, thank you so so very very much for your time, man. I really appreciate this. This has been an absolute joy to talk to you, and I'm super stoked on all the adventures and endeavors you've you've done over the years, and just for the music you've given us. And uh, yeah, thank you again so much. Well, thank you, Michael. I appreciate being asked, and it's uh, yeah always fun to talk to to somebody else who loves loves music so easy job wonderful i appreciate that <laughs>
All right. Take care, Mike. All right, Jeff. Have a good night. Bye.